Today, I have invited journalist Jackie Botts from Cal Matters, which partners with our friends at the Desert Sun and the USA Today Network, uh, to join us as she has just published earlier this week a story entitled California Reparations Committee Confronts Harms of Slavery, Debates Direct Payments. Welcome, Jackie Botts, to the John McMullen Show. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, Jackie's beat is income inequity and economic survival. Her past includes working uh, for Reuters News, the Santa Barbara Independent, Pacific Standard, Public Radio International, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you with us to talk about this important issue and a a history of what I am sure there are going to be many more people besides yours truly who had no idea the depths of discrimination and bigotry that ooze from California's history. Um, your recently published story at CalMatters leads with the fact that uh, for more than three decades, black members of Congress have introduced legislation to study the lasting harms of slavery on American uh, African Americans and uh, to propose remedies. Uh, in fact, I was just watching members of the House today on national news shows expressing their hope to make some headway this year on that front. But here in California, we're not waiting for the federal legislature to get on this, Jackie. What's going on in the Golden State? Yeah, so in California, we're actually the first state to launch our own reparations task force, um, which kicked off at the start of June. It was legislated last year, sort of amid the um, national uprisings following the death of George Floyd. Um, And what they are tasked with doing is doing exactly what members of Congress have been hoping to see at the federal level level for 30 years, like you you just mentioned. This task force has two years to um, work together to study the consequences of slavery um, and systemic racism against African Americans in California, but also make recommendations on how the state should make reparations. They don't have the power to actually legislate those reparations. More laws would need to be passed once their recommendations are published in two years' time. Um, But it's certainly a step that has never been taken before at the state level um, anywhere else. And it's part of this growing movement of um, cities and now states uh, throwing their weight behind this idea of actually paying reparations to the descendants of African-American slaves. So who comprises the Reparations Committee in California, um, and who it, was this something that was appointed by the governor's office or uh, the legislature, uh, and what specifically will be expected of them uh, you know, to come out of, of that two-year period? Yeah, so they are um, a, a, divi- a diverse group of folks, uh, nine members um, who include prominent lawyers, academics, uh, politicians, religious and civil rights leaders, um, and many of them are themselves the descendants of slaves. They were appointed jointly by the governor and by the legislature, and two of them are actually lawmakers themselves. Um They have actually a lot on their plate over the next two years. So they are to meet 10 times. um, And after the first year, they're supposed to report, um, release a report of their findings um, about the history of slavery and uh, the discrimination, racial discrimination that followed. And And after the second year, 
to, to issue a report for recommendations for reparation. Is that 10 times over the course of the whole two years, or is that per year? 10 times over the course of the whole two years, though I will say that during the meeting, um, this first meeting on uh, June 1st, which lasted six hours, there was talk of actually expanding that to more meetings, and there was a lot of um, comments from the public asking for more meetings and more uh, public comment sessions. Uh, yeah, in six hours, that's kind of a small down payment uh, on two years of work ahead. But um, what were some of the highlights that uh, we should know about that came out of that initial meeting? Yeah, I think that there were sort of two categories of highlights, I think I'd say. The first is that the um, this reparations task force is housed within the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice has been doing work um, around uh this task force and sort of setting the stage. And so the Department of Justice um, brought a number of examples of um, moments and chapters um, of racism in California's history that they brought up at this meeting that I think sort of gives us a hint of the type of thing that we might actually learn in the report that is issued at the end of the first year. So, you know, for example, California joined the Union as a free state in 1850. Um, and this is a question that many will ask, why should California be considering reparations if it was never a slave state? But the state also enacted a fugitive slave law that allowed slaves to be in California as long as they were eventually sent back to the South. And there are um, numerous examples of slaves um, that continued to live in California, which California officials or members um, of the judicial branch um, continued to keep in slavery or contempt to slavery. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a slavery area example, but they're also going to be digging into more recent examples of discrimination that have made the experience of living in the United States and California very different for um, black Americans than for their counterparts of other races. Now, I think the other big um, thing that I'd like to highlight was that throughout the meeting um, at the beginning of this month, members of the task force talked again and again about the need to focus in particular on um, the racial housing gap, uh, gap and um, the history of centuries and decades of housing discrimination against African-Americans, as well as focusing in particular on the mental health of African-American and black Californians today um, and taking into account how a history of slavery and discrimination affects people's mental health. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I did not know until I read your article a few days ago, um, because I didn't grow up in California, so I didn't like have California state history taught to me in, in uh, school. Uh, but sure, I didn't really either, and yeah. I did grow up in California. I, I have many friends who did grow up here, like yourself, uh, who I would venture uh, to guess that most of them had no clue about some of what you discuss in the article um, at California's dark past. Uh, but would you mind sharing some of the, uh, some of that story, including the details of a man who arrived here in the mid 1800s as a slave, Archie Lee? Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. Archie Lee is um, somewhat of a famous case. So he was brought to California as a slave by his slave owner in 1857 and he escaped. Because of that fugitive slave law that I just mentioned, he was returned to slavery by a panel of California Supreme Court judges. On that panel was Peter Burnett. Um, 
a former slave, a former slaveholder who actually served as California's first governor and tried to ban black people from the state. Um, Ultimately, Archie Lee did win his freedom um, through the hard work of many civil rights activists. Um, but this is an example that shows us, you know, not just of the existence of slavery in California and the way that the state upheld slavery in California, but also points to um, the fact that many of the founding sort of leaders of, of California state government themselves uh, were um, supporters of the institution of slavery. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, our guest is Jackie Botts, and she is a journalist with Cal Matters and has written a story that you'll find at the Desert Sun website or in the paper from Sunday, actually, last Sunday, uh, headlined California Reparations Committee Confronts Harms of Slavery, Debates Direct Payments, and you can also find that story along with everything else that uh, Jackie writes for Cal Matters at their website, which is Cal, C-A-L, Matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S dot O-R-G. So uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, we'll welcome you to dial in as well at 760-544-8255 here on the John McMullen Show. Uh, before we go off uh, and take our first break, uh, Jackie, I want to also... Um, uh, Mentioned that some people hear that word reparations used in a dialogue about slavery and they get all indignant at the idea um, and state that the victims of slavery uh, are all deceased now. And, you know, what did their ancestor do uh, to deserve any sort of compensation? And when I hear that, my the skin on the back of my neck just kind of crawls. But but you talk about the health, education, and economic implications in the, in the piece. Can we... Um, educate some of these people who just don't get it on on that front yeah sure and i think it's i think it's very important that you bring that up um you know in congress that exact argument that you just made has been one of the the arguments that has really stalled hr 40 that proposal to create a task force to study recommendations at the federal level that argument that this uh, reparations would take money from a group of people who never contributed to slavery and give it to another group of people who never themselves experienced slavery. People talk about living in the past, not being able to move forward, um, creating, you know, div divisive policies that divide people by race, right? And this is not an uncommon um, feeling, and so it's important to talk about it, right? I, there's actually a poll that came out last year that found that one in 10 white respondents across the country uh, supported cash reparations while nine and 10 did not. Meanwhile, half of black respondents did. So we have a very racially divided understanding of the concept of reparations in our country. Um, this law was ushered in um, by Shirley Weber, who is our now secretary of state and was an assembly member last year when she introduced the bill. And she made the point in um, announcing, uh, in welcoming the new members of the task force that the work of this committee is to acknowledge the ways that many generations of policies, including during the time of slavery and also after the time of slavery, have compounded to put black Americans in a very different place when they began their life in terms of their opportunities, wealth in their family, ability to um, get op educational opportunities, health status, etc. So that's where we're starting with this conversation. 
there are some examples uh, in the story as well about businesses and how they benefited back in the day from slavery who are still around. Uh, how did Penn Mutual Life Insurance benefit? Yeah, so during the presentation, um, Department of Justice staff members told the members of the Reparations Committee that they need to consider not only um, the effects of discrimination on African Americans, but also who has benefited from slavery and racism over time, companies and institutions. They offered the example of um, insurance companies, which wrote policies to insure slaves for slaveholders. They actually offered the example of Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company. Um, I, I will say that since I published the article, Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company has actually contested that they ever wrote policies to insure slaves. And so I'm um, sure that I they did. The Department <laughs> of Justice to uh, to show me um, the document that they referenced there. Um, but there are numerous examples over time of um, uh, institutions which either directly or, or indirectly have benefited um, uh, financially from the institutions of slavery. Yeah, there are also uh, other local efforts and communities throughout California that are underway to deal with reparations. Uh, and you make reference to some of these in your story. And in fact, one that we just discussed on this program a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that was around the Bruce's Beach area in Manhattan Beach, where efforts are underway to get that property back into the hands of descendants of the uh, well, the family of the r original owners of that. Uh, and even here in uh, the Coachella Valley, uh, I don't know if you know the story here, but back in the 1950s in Palm Springs, land that is tribal reservation land uh, and that was occupied largely by people of color, members of the black community here in Palm Springs, who at the time would go off to work and come home to find their property and everything gone, having been burned to the ground while they were away. And that the city did this because they wanted to begin to build that area up as what is currently the main business district of downtown Palm Springs. So we've seen our local Palm Springs Human Rights Commission talking about supporting the idea of reparations to those families as well. Do those who get involved with these efforts at the state level find themselves concerned about this opening a potential floodgate, or could it actually help achieve the goal of what the committee is setting out to do? You know, that's a great question, and I wasn't familiar with that history, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. I'm, I'm interested in researching it. So it, it's a great question that you ask, like sort of what can of worms does this open? How much liability might this task force um, find? Um, during the initial meeting, there was certainly an eagerness to try to open up this conversation as much as possible to the people of California and look for those local histories um, in which black families lost property and lost homes, um, in which there were policies that barred black families from living in certain places or um, achieving more wealth and mobility in their lives, right? And so there's, there's a hope to not only tell the truth about these things, bring them to light, but also to gather these examples. And um, it's actually State Senator Stephen Bradford, who is a member on this task force and is also um, a member of the legislature who has introduced legislation to return that land to, to the Bruce family descendants. 
um, that Black-owned resort in the city of Manhattan Beach, which was seized by the city and taken away from these Black owners back in the 1920s. Um, and so, you know, he's pushing that in his legislation and mentioned it in the um, task force meeting as a potential model for state reparations going forward. So I think that that it's, um, yeah, wise of you to bring that up, because I think that that is something that will be very much um, uh, influencing potential recommendations. And then the reparations um, task force members are going to have to grapple with some really hard questions about what reparations actually look like. It's a conversation that's been going on for a long time in scholarly circles and in black and African-American communities, but not in public meetings at the state level. So what could it potentially look like? I mean, are we talking about, you know, official apologies or land grants or uh, financial payments or or what else is there out there? What, What could make this right with the African-American heirs of uh, of those who were enslaved? So this is a this is a controversial question that has played out in many um, international and more recently national examples of reparations processes. Um, there are scholars split over what the right approach is, and it appears that members of this task force might as well. Many descendants of African slaves direct payments to um, to anyone who descended from African slaves, and only to those who descended from African slaves, to make up in particular for the institution of slavery. And in some cases, they call for an amount of money that would um, be equivalent to 40 acres and a mule, that Civil War era promise that was made and not fulfilled following the Civil War. Um, but more recently, um, there are examples of cities across the country um, that have t- undertaken their own reparations processes, Asheville, North Carolina, Evanston in Illinois, Providence in Rhode Island, that are emphasizing sort of what you might call um, a softer approach. So looking at how they can redirect money in the city's budget to reinvest in African-American communities, but shying away from these types of direct payments that many in the African-American community call for, but that would uh, tally to a pretty tall bill for, for a local government. Um, there were members of the task force who, who stood up and said, you know, I um, will stay from the beginning. I'm going to be pushing for cash payments, but, on the other side, that state senator um, Bradford, who I mentioned earlier, um, he suggested free education to descendants of slaves at Cal State and UC systems, um, and first-time home buyers assistance—a different type of approach that doesn't prioritize direct payments to the descendants of slaves. Well, Jackie Botts from Cal Matters, thank you so much for joining today here on the John McMullen Show. Listeners, again, you can read the story in the Desert Sun from last Sunday, and of course. You can find a collection of stories that are being written by Jackie at calmatters.org. I hope we can talk again in the future. Please uh, keep us up to date on what's going on. I would love to. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for coming on. And we will continue with more of the John McMullen Show on the iHub Network.